Our text this morning is John 17, verses 11 through 19. This is the word of Almighty God. Jesus praying says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Would you pray with me, friends? Lord God, even now, even as we open your word, even as we find ourselves in a hard world, in a hostile world, I pray that you will give us hope and courage in realizing just how much grace you've given us through the prayers, through the thoughtful prayers of your son, which cover your disciples and your church. God, be faithful. Teach us, grow us, encourage us. Let us celebrate even in the middle of a hard world this day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. For many years, Christians in America have known little of persecution. Would you guys agree that that's true? Now, certainly, some of us have read Voice of the Martyrs. We know about persecution that's beyond our borders. Maybe we've heard those stories of the rare cases of actual violent persecution of Christians in our country. Some of you probably think that you've been persecuted if you ran into somebody that said mean things online. Maybe, maybe, maybe you ran into a harsh person. But I will say this, as time has gone by, more Christians in America have found out that holding to biblical beliefs and practices are starting to put you at risk of having your job threatened, having friendships and family relationships threatened. But still, I think it's true that few of us in this room have experienced significant hardship because of the dangerous differences between the believer and the world at large. Does that sound true to you? That while you know it's out there, most of you have not experienced heavy hardship for your faith? Yes. Okay. A couple of you would say yes. A couple of you are thinking about it. Let me ask you this. How long will it be? 
We know God can do miracles. God can turn the nation toward him. He can turn us toward his righteousness. We know that God can save souls, right? We know God can change families and cities and counties and states and nations and the world, and he will. But God has not promised us that this time in this nation will be the when and the where of massive revival. And what if the Lord sees fit to give this nation over to our natural sinful inclinations? Romans 1, anybody? How long will it be should the Lord allow us to get what we deserve? How long will it be before genuine hardship, genuine persecution, genuine suffering becomes the lot of those who are faithful to the name of Jesus? Truth is, dear friends, if you follow the word of God, you are outside the bounds of the modern civil religion's orthodoxy. Does that make sense to you, what I just said? If you love Jesus, you're outside the world's pattern. Because Christians cannot embrace the ways of the world, we will face the hatred of the world We cannot go along with the world's views on marriage, on the family, on the ordering of the household, on on sexual morality and immorality, on gender, on abortion, on a host of other issues. And I'm not being political when I say that. We can't go with them and embrace their values. Because of our belief in objective reality, we stand at odds with a world that declares truth to be whatever you feel it to be. Because of the exclusivity of Jesus' claim to be the only way to God, we stand outside of the world's relativistic mindset. And as we refuse to bow at the altar of modern correctness, we may in fact find ourselves under harsh persecution. It's a bit of a downer for the Christmas season. But do you think I'm lying to you? In Jesus' prayer in John 17, the great high priestly prayer, we find out that the Lord Jesus was quite aware of the fact that the world, meaning the system of people who reject God and God's commandments, the world, the world hates followers of Jesus and it's going to keep that up. It simply stands to reason though, doesn't it? If the world hated Jesus enough to put Jesus to death for no crime at all, And I'm just going to tell you, he was more likable than you. If that's true, then the world will hate his followers too. 
Earlier this evening, Jesus taught that truth to his disciples. In John 15, 20, or 18 to 21, he said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. Listen to this and see if this makes, rings a bell for you. Jesus said, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. In the upper room, Jesus was aware. He was mere hours away from the moment that he would cease to be physically present with his disciples in the world to protect them, to comfort them, to guide them. Thus, Jesus prays for his followers, for the lives that they're going to live in the middle of a very hostile world. In Jesus' prayer for his disciples... He asks his father to do three things. Keep them in his name. Keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them in the truth. And those three things are going to lead us to three things we can find for ourselves in the word of God today. So let's work through three points as we watch the Lord Jesus praying for his disciples before his arrest, before his crucifixion, praying a prayer for preservation. After all, if God doesn't keep us, we surely will not be kept. But if the Lord keeps us, nothing can take us from him. Ready to get started? Point number one. Rejoice in God's preserving power. Rejoice in God's preserving power. Look at verses 11 and 12 of John 17. Jesus said, I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So here in the prayer, Jesus says he's leaving the world. We all know this already, right? He has said this to his disciples several times this evening. And we know what he means, right? He means he's going to go to the cross. He's going to be buried. But then he's also going to come back from the grave. He's going to come out of the tomb alive. But then he's going to return to be with his father in heaven. He's going to ascend to heaven alive where Jesus is currently right now seated alive on the throne of the universe. And in the time while Jesus is away from his disciples, the disciples are going to be left without his physical presence. If Jesus is physically in heaven, he's not physically in this room, right? Spiritually, he's here He is still the omnipresent God, but as far as the humanity of Christ is concerned, he is physically not here. You can't walk up and shake Jesus' hand right now. 
Jesus is not going to be present with his disciples to speak the words that leave the Pharisees scratching their heads. Jesus is not going to be with his disciples to leave the hostile temple guards unable to arrest his followers. Christ will no longer be there to be the focus of the angry attention of the mob. And the disciples are about to become targets of the world's hatred. The hatred that the world bears for Christ will fall on the disciples left on this earth while the Savior is enthroned. So, Jesus prays for his followers. Now, just as a side note, y'all think that if Jesus prays for his followers, it matters? If you had anybody else to pray for you, is there somebody you'd pick that you'd like, I'd rather have them pray for me instead of Jesus? If so, I promise you, you're in the wrong place or you're very confused. Well, the first petition Jesus prays is very simple. Keep them in your name. Jesus wants God to keep, to preserve his followers. The Savior is not going to be physically present to keep his disciples after his departure, so the Father needs to keep them. But when the Lord asked his Father, keep them in your name, there's a couple things, a couple of meanings that could be in place. What does he mean by in your name? Well, on the one hand, keeping followers in his name could be God keeping followers by his strength, by his power. Psalm 54 verse 1 reads, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. As God's name and God's might are parallel thoughts in that verse, so Christ asking that we be kept in his name might be him asking that the Father would keep us by his might. This, of course, is exactly what God does. God preserves us by his power. How many of you are happy to think about the fact that God keeps you by his power? Yeah. This is what gives us security in him. But the other side of the thought could be that Christ is asking the Father to keep his disciples faithful to his name. Keep them in your name. Father, keep the disciples focused on finding their purpose in you. That too is what God does, right? So it really doesn't matter for you to decide which of those two things it might mean because both are very much true. God keeps us as his children by his power for his glory. Well, Jesus asked the Father, keep the disciples in your name so that they might be one just as Jesus and the Father are one. Again, what does he mean? In the next verse, he tells us Jesus wants the disciples to be kept the way that he has already been keeping them. He guarded his little flock of disciples. And Jesus did not lose a one of them. Every person he chose, the Savior kept. They are one, one flock, one body, one family of followers. They remain united. They remained in Jesus, united in purpose and on mission. They remained united uh, in family relationship, just as the Father and the Son are united. Now, if you were an astute reader of John's gospel, you might raise a question here. Hey, you said you kept all of your disciples. 
What about Judas? Don't you love the gotcha questions that people always have? Oh, yeah? I love the fact that we still get gotcha questions 2,000 years after they've all been answered. There has not been a new gotcha question raised in hundreds of years. Well, Jesus was betrayed by Judas. Does that mean Jesus failed to keep Judas? In John 6, verses 70 and 71, words spoken by Jesus a year before this time, Jesus answered and said, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. At least a year before his betrayal, Jesus made clear reference to the fact that Judas was in a different category from the other disciples. Christ chose the twelve. Eleven of them Jesus chose to be his faithful followers. One of them he chose as a devil, an opponent, an adversary. That's what the word devil means. Jesus did not, of course, force Judas to oppose him. Jesus held out genuine offers of friendship to Judas, but Jesus knew from the very beginning exactly who Judas was and what Judas would do. So let's ask this, what's at stake in these words of Jesus? Well, what's at stake is the eternal security of the disciples. Jesus is praying, Father, keep them. Keep them by your power. Keep them for your glory. Keep them faithful to you. Do not let them wander away. When the world attacks them, which it will, keep their faith in me solid. Father, do not lose my followers to damnation. Do not let them turn away. I kept them all. Only Judas turned away. Judas was the son of destruction, destined for hell. But Father, keep these safe in your name that they may stay together eternally linked just as we are eternally linked. Let's make it simpler. Jesus is praying for his followers that God would keep them as disciples. Jesus is praying for the preservation of his followers in a hostile world. It would be easy for disciples to give up and turn away from the faith. Jesus prays that the Father will keep them from falling away. Now, here's the question. And by the way, this question is a question you can ask about any time in any sermon. Why should we care about this? There's always a so what question that you should work through. So what? You and I, as followers of Jesus, live in a hostile world. There are all sorts of things that Fight for our attention. There are all sorts of things that fight for our souls. We should thank God that we see in Jesus 
that he prays for the well-being of his followers. He prays for the preservation of his followers. He prays that God will keep the ones who come to him. And thanks be to God, we know this to be true. God will never lose someone who comes to him in faith. This is not because the person who is saved is so strong. Rather, God preserves those who become Christians because God is strong. In John 6, 37 to 40, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You know, don't you, that if Jesus promised to raise you up on the last day, he's not going to lose you between now and then? John 10, 27 to 30, Jesus said, My sheep, my sheep, the ones that belong to me, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Let's pause for a second. If Jesus gives you eternal life, when can you lose it? If you lose it, was it eternal? There we go. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. In both of those passages earlier in this book, Jesus is clear that he came to save those the Father has given him. And he will save them. Jesus will keep them. The Lord will raise them up on the last day. Well, how about this for you memory verse lovers? Romans 8, 28 and 29. So 8, 29 and 30. Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. When we read the golden chain of Romans 8, 29 to 30. We see a very clear step-by-step process from election and predestination through redemption to glory. God keeps his own. None are lost. He doesn't say, and some of those he justified, he also glorified. Those he justifies He glorifies. None start the process and fall off along the way. Even facing persecution, the children of God 
remain. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. John's clear. If somebody appears to be a follower of Christ, but then that person falls away and doesn't come back, they were never truly converted. God does not lose the ones he rescues. So Christians know this without a doubt. No genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ will ever turn away from the faith and be lost. If a man is saved, he will stay saved. He may stumble. He may fall. He may even rebel for a season of life. But he'll never fall so far as to be eternally lost. He will never, it is impossible to go from a state of being a saved child of God into a state of not being God's child. This is the preservation Jesus prays for. He asks that God keep his children as one unbroken group of people who are always his children, just as the Trinity is one unbroken eternal union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So how should we respond? Well, the point told you, rejoice in God's preserving power. If you're God's child, if you have asked Jesus to save you, if you have believed and you know he saved you, God will preserve you. If you've come to Jesus, you can rest in the knowledge he will keep your soul. Now, if you say, well, uh, I'm going to reject and run from Jesus and never come back, you can know that you weren't really his. You, you did something that wasn't trusting in Jesus. But listen to me. If you know you belong to Jesus now, if you know your whole tr- trust for your whole eternity is in Jesus and Jesus alone, if you know he has saved your soul, thank God you can have confidence that you will always, absolutely always be his. Rejoice in God's preserving power because realizing that you belong to God and can never be lost, that is a source of great comfort. Rejoice because honoring and glorifying this God is the reason you exist. It's the only joy that can satisfy your soul. And by the way, Jesus had that kind of joy in mind when he prayed for the Father to preserve the disciples. Look at verse 13, John 17, 13. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. What Jesus prays, he prays because he's leaving the world to go to the Father. Jesus prays what he prays so that the disciples will have joy fulfilled. How many of you think having joy fulfilled sounds good? Christ wants these people, hear my prayer. He wants you to hear him and he wants you to find comfort and joy in his words. He wants the Father to so keep his disciples that they're not only secure, but they're satisfied in their souls because they experience the true joy for which they were created. That's why I say to you, rejoicing in the preserving power of God is a right response to what Jesus just prayed. 
He wants us to know God. He wants us to know God's keeping, saving, preserving grace. And he wants us to rejoice. That's not a bad starter point for the Christmas season after all, is it? Now, we know rejoicing is not always easy, is it? We live in a hard world, don't we? Do you think Jesus knew it too? That led to what Jesus prayed next. Point number two. Cling to Jesus while living in the world. Cling to Jesus while living in the world. Look at verse 14. I have given them your word and the And the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Jesus has given his disciples the word of God that called them to Jesus, that that gave them joy when they follow God's commands, when they follow the word of God to Jesus and honor Jesus through obedience to the word. This giving of the word to the disciples has caused them also, though, to be hated by the world because the world hates God's word. The world hates God's son. The world hates those who are not like it, who don't value what it values, who don't think as they think. And these facts lead Jesus to the next petition, the second big petition in verses 15 and 16. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Jesus prays what he doesn't want, then what he wants. We're being very clear here. And one might think, it makes sense, doesn't it? One might think if the world's going to be so hateful and hostile to Christians, maybe Jesus is just going to say, oh, Father, just snatch them up out of the world so that we can protect them from hardships and persecutions that come before them. But that's not Jesus' prayer. Be careful if you ever hear escapist theology. The Savior has something much better in mind, though. Jesus prays that God would keep his followers from the evil one. You guys get, don't you, that's a clear reference to the devil? Do not, you modern-thinking Christians, you, you scientifically-minded modern Christians, Do not think for a moment that we live in a solely material world. Is there a God who made us? There has to be. You know that there's just absolutely no answer for why the universe exists if there's not a starter. I like uh, Greg Kokel and Tactics and some of his other books when he talks about this. He goes, you know... I'm not really into the whole scientific theory stuff. And even we don't want to argue about it. And someone's like, I believe in the Big Bang. He goes, great, but there has to be a Big Banger. (laughs) He goes, you know, he told the story. He said one time he was in a party and a guy said, that's ridiculous. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard that you just assumed that because a Big Bang happened that something, something caused it. He goes, okay. He says, it wasn't like five minutes later that there was a Big Bang outside the house, like a big And the guy goes, what was that? Uh, because obviously nothing. <laughs> he said, same night, someone knocked on the door. He goes, he goes, better go see who that is. He goes, why would you assume there's somebody there? <laughs> Stuff 
don't happen without a cause. The universe has a cause. Therefore, someone eternal caused the finite. Just You can't get around it. You really, really can't. If you guys believe there's a God who made us, then you believe in a spiritual reality outside the material. People have souls. Do you believe that? Or do you believe you're just a bag of chemicals bouncing around the universe, bumping into other bags of chemicals? There are such things, friends, as angels and demons, and there is such a person as the devil. John 10, 10, Jesus said, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. He meant the devil. John 13, verse 2, John says during the dinner, during the Lord's Supper, during that evening, the Lord had put it, or sorry, the devil had put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray the Lord. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, Peter says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Even though our world would like to pretend that he doesn't exist, the devil is a real person. According to the word of God, there is a being who exists, who is the enemy of all things good. He's not a figment of overactive imagination. He is not simply a child story created to teach people about the concept of evil. There's a very real, very dangerous, very evil being that the Bible calls the adversary, the dragon, the prince of the power of the air, Satan or the devil. And that person desires, desires to destroy and to devour the people of God. And whether it be from direct spiritual attack or indirect worldly influence, the devil tries to harm, to discredit, or to destroy Christians. So it's a wonderful thing that we see Jesus praying that the Father keep his disciples from a being like that. In the setting of Jesus walking from the upper room to the garden, isn't it amazing? God did not allow Satan to capture and kill all those followers of Jesus. You know, there was a bunch of soldiers by the garden, right? A cohort? They could have captured and killed 13 guys, 12 guys, right? But all of Jesus' followers escaped that night when Jesus was arrested. Who do you think made that happen? Then after that time, God protected the early church from being destroyed by the schemes of the devil. Today, we can take joy as well in knowing that God will keep us from the devil. Now, don't be confused about who the devil is. The devil personally probably isn't messing with you. He's busy with other people. I think he lives in D.C. He vacations here, but he... He's not omnipresent, but he's got a lot of helpers. We may suffer persecution. We may suffer persecution even to the point of death. But God will never allow the devil to win. 
The devil is already defeated and the devil will be defeated. He will not defeat the people of God. He will not defeat the church of God. He may win a skirmish here and there, but the big battle, the whole war is already won. God will protect his people from the schemes of the devil and from his agents in the world. And we should thank God that the devil won't win. And we should, under God's protection, stand strong against the devil and his ways, even though it may be hard. God wants us to stand strong, to not back down, to not give up. If you're a believer, know that you don't need to fear the evil one. Martin Luther wrote in one of our favorite songs, y'all, the prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That's true. So let's stand firm in the confidence that our God will keep us from falling prey to the evil one. So what's the point? Cling to Jesus while you live in this world. He's not taking you out of it. He's not going to make it super easy necessarily. You don't get your best life now. By the way, if your best life is now, eternity stinks. How many of you hope that this is your best life? How many of your bodies are acting like it's your best life right now? Anybody got a need that's telling them this is not my best life now? Cling to Jesus because he clings to us. Stand against the devil, knowing that Jesus has already prayed for you and he still is interceding for you with the Father in this battle. Yes, it's a hard world. God is not going to rip you out of this world, but he is going to be with you. He is going to preserve you and we will cling to him. And then we get the third request from Jesus to his father for his followers. Point number three, be sanctified in God's word. Be sanctified in God's word. Verse 17 to 19, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. One more thing, Jesus asked of the Father, sanctify them in truth. The word sanctify, that's a word that means to set apart, to make holy. Jesus asks the Father, set us apart. And when he uses that word there, he's having to do with the idea of God the Father setting us apart with a purpose, setting us apart on a mission. He's sending us into the world. We've got a job to do. And we're set apart for that job. So what should we be sanctified in as we try to obey God and, and honor him in this world? Jesus says, the truth is what we are to be sanctified in. And what is the truth, you ask? Jesus says, your word is the truth. So if we are to fulfill our mission, if we are to be the church and the people God wants us to be, we must be sanctified in the truth, in the word of Almighty God. David spoke of that type of sanctification in Psalm 119 when he said, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Because he was sent by his father into this hostile world on a mission, Jesus also says, I consecrate myself. 
Very similar word, by the way, to sanctify. Jesus set himself apart for the mission that the Father had set him apart to accomplish. But the word consecrate also stirs in our minds more than just being set apart in a general way. When speaking about himself here, Jesus will draw your mind to the picture of offerings and sacrifices in the Old Testament system. Because in the Old Covenant system, an animal might be set apart Now, if you were a lamb living in Old Testament Israel, you did not want to be set apart. It was bad. I was seeing if the children were awake, and they are. That's good. A lamb set apart, singled out, consecrated, was set apart to be slaughtered as an offering to God to protect the people of God from the right wrath they deserve to receive for sinning against God. The consecrated animal died as a substitute for the people so that the people could be in a favorable relationship with God. Do you understand that that's exactly what Jesus did? He consecrated himself as the only possible sin offering. Jesus did the work. He accomplished the mission so he could benefit the children of God And he says he did this so that all of his followers might be sanctified in truth. The followers of Jesus, the 11 faithful disciples, they're not consecrated to be sin offerings. That was Jesus' job. The mission of Jesus was to be the sin offering. But the mission of Jesus also had to do at some level with his followers being sanctified, being set apart on mission, being sent into the world, being made holy, reflecting the glory of God as they take the gospel to the nations. And I know that if that was true of Jesus' disciples way back in his day, that is still true for you and me today. You and I, if we are to follow Jesus like Jesus' original faithful disciples were to follow him, we need to be sanctified in the truth, in the word of God. Do you want to accomplish the mission God has for you? Do you want to be what God made you to be? Do you want to think the way God wants you to think? If so, you've got to be sanctified. And sanctification starts. It starts when because of the grace of God, you rest your full hope for your entire eternity in Jesus and his finished work. Be saved to be sanctified. I promise you, if you're not saved, you ain't getting sanctified. God never said, clean yourself up and I'll think about you. Once you're saved, you need to be made different from the world. And God will do that in you. He will set you apart from the world. You've got to let your thoughts and your life in every category be driven by and directed by the clear truth of the Word of God. Let's face it, let's be really honest people. There are things that the world says about right and wrong, about truth and righteousness, that can sound right. Their arguments sometimes actually make sense. Their arguments can grab your emotion and capture your attention and make you feel bad for not agreeing with them. Plus, there are always so many people who agree with the world. But God wants you and he wants me 
to be sanctified, to be set apart. We cannot let our thoughts be directed by the arguments of a secular world. No, we must have our thoughts driven by and purified by the word of God. We need to be sanctified in the truth of God's word. And that means, that means that we must think in every instance of life with one absolute standard, which is the Bible. We need to be a Bible people. We need to live and make all of our decisions and, and rest all of our values with a biblical basis undergirding every single thing we do. I want to read to you some very familiar words that speak of our sanctification. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. So here's my question for you. Not to beat you up. Not to say that you're going to, wow, you're really going to earn God's favor if you get this one right. That's not the point. But you want joy. You want to be what Jesus made you to be. So here's my question. Are you being sanctified in God's word? And you might want to ask the Lord, Lord, how can I better be sanctified in your truth? Your word is truth. Jesus prayed for his disciples because they were entering into a hostile world. And Christians, we're in a hostile world right now. Jesus prayed that the Father would keep his followers in his name. We thank God that God keeps us safe in his care if we're saved. By his power, on his mission, for his glory. Jesus prayed that the Father would keep his disciples from the evil one. And we praise God he protects us from the schemes of the devil. Jesus prayed that his followers be sanctified by the word of God. And we must, if we love him, let every aspect of our lives be fully founded upon and guided by God's holy word. And some who hear my voice, whether you're in this room or whether you listen to the podcast online, some of you are hearing this and you don't have any idea what God's word really says about you and about God. For some people, you've never yet been forgiven by God and become one of God's actual children under his protection, sanctified by his word. If that's you, I invite you today. Come to know Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Recognize that you have lived your life for yourself, even if you were trying to be good, by the way. You've lived for yourself. There have been times you've gone against the commands and the standards of God. But turn away from that and let that go. And come to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Ask Jesus for his pardon. Jesus died to pay the penalty for all of those who would believe in him, and then he rose from the grave. 
Put your trust in Jesus and God will include you as his very own child who lives under his protection and who can be set apart from the world by the truth of God's holy word. Let's pray together, friends. Lord, as we bow, I just ask you, please, accomplish great things in your people. Thank you for your graces. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for sanctifying grace. Thank you for the holy word of God. Thank you for your protection. Thank you for your righteousness. And I pray, Lord, that we will be a people sanctified in the truth. Your word is truth. Help us love Jesus and be truly grateful for all we've been given. It's in his holy name that we pray. Amen.